This is a sobering text. I want to say in the last few weeks, we've seen the apostles, they've had a confrontation with their religious leaders in the temple. And that conversation ended by the religious leaders telling the Peter and John specifically to no longer preach the gospel in Jesus' name. Last week, we saw that the warning probably weighed on them a little bit, and they went to God in prayer, rested in his sovereignty, and asked God for, his bold, for boldness that they could continue preaching the gospel. And now we come to our text, and I know that I, I just read the text, but I want to uh, read the, first, the rest of verse 4 from 32 to 37. And then uh, talk about some main points really quick. The full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, so this first section, these verses are about the, the great love and, and generosity that the early Christians uh, had towards one another. And this is something Luke has already spoken about in chapter 2, and we, we discussed it there. And so because of that, I don't really want to linger on this section for too long, but I'm going to hit on some of the main points. If you look at verse 32, it says that the believers were of one heart and one soul. So when many of us, we think of unity, we tend to think of doctrinal unity. And, and that's important, and that's true, and we should be unified in, in essential doctrines. But given this context about selling and, and being generous and having no needs, being of one heart and one soul means that they considered each other's needs as if it was their own. They would think that if their brother or sister didn't have something, it was as if they also didn't have something that they needed. Whatever was happening to one member of the body was also happening to everyone else in the body. And the church, they would gather together and share their resources to provide for that need. And verse 32 said that they had everything in common. And this doesn't mean that they were living as communists. They weren't made to sell their possessions and share the profits. They willingly sold what they had to meet the needs of others. And so what Luke's just trying to do is he's just trying to uh, highlight their generosity, highlight the love and the care that they had for one another. Now verse 32, 34, I'm sorry, it gives us a strong clue at what Luke is really getting at. Uh, he says in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them. What's that about? So when we go back to 
Deuteronomy 15, Moses tells the Jewish people how they ought to live as a community. And here's what he says. He tells them that there shall be no poor or needy among you. So being blessed by the Lord and helping the needy among them was how the Israelites were supposed to have lived. But they didn't. I think this gives us a glimpse of of what Luke's really getting at and what's really going on. Unlike the old covenant people of Israel, this new movement, this new people centered around Jesus Messiah is actually living the way that God intended for his people to live all along. They're meeting each other's needs. And notice in verse 35 that they laid the money at the apostles' feet. Now it was certainly okay for them to do uh, private acts, uh, give away, be selfless in, in private situations. But the general way that they handled money was that they brought it, they sold things, they, they brought their money, their gift, their offerings, and they, they took it to the apostles, and then they trusted the apostles to distribute it wisely. Now this is similar to how the church functions today. We bring our offerings to the church and, and trust that the church will distribute and use those offerings wisely. And look at, at verses 36 and 37. It, it uses Barnas, Barnabas as sort of a shiny example for how this community had lived. Uh, listen to what it says. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, as we go on later in Acts, we're going to hear a lot more about Barnabas. But the point of speaking of him here is that Luke is, is highlighting Barnabas' generosity to set it up as a contrast for what's about to happen in chapter 5. So let's go to chapter 5. Verses 1 to 2, we'll start there. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we're, we're introduced to a husband and wife named Sapphira. Now the, the story of Luke has told us that so far, uh, in chapter 5, in these first two verses, we have a couple who have sold some property and Ananias has, has brought uh, what was sold to the apostles. Now, so far, this is similar to what the church did and similar to what Barnabas did. But there is one difference. Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, kept back some of the money for himself. Now, if you're Ananias you have to think that you've just done a great thing. You've sold a piece of land to help out brothers and sisters. The angels have got to be singing. God has got to be smiling. But look how Peter responds in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie, to shit, to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
Now let's think about this for a second. Imagine that you notice the needs of other Christians, of another brother and sister at Milford Bible Church. And so you take something very valuable, like a car, and you sell it, and you give a lot of the money that you made on the sale to the church. And you just say, I just want you to take this and, and distribute it as needed. Probably the last thing that you would expect to hear is that Satan has filled your heart. But that's what we hear Peter tell Ananias, that Satan has filled his heart. Satan's name, Satan doesn't come up a whole lot on the surface level of the text, but the fact that he does come to the surface from time to time, like now, demonstrates that he's one behind all of the attacks on the kingdom, the attacks on the church. So just a couple weeks ago, we saw that Satan tried to attack the church from the outside by using the religious leaders to tell them to stop sharing the gospel. But crafty as Satan is, he's beginning to infiltrate and work from the inside. If he can get a foothold and contaminate the church with sin, if he can do it within the church, then it'll spread like wildfire to many others in the church as well. What exactly is Ananias' sin? What exactly was his sin? Was his sin that he kept some of the money back for himself? Was he obligated to give away everything that he sold? Was that, was that the problem, that he didn't give away everything that he sold? Was he obligated to do that? No. He wasn't obligated to give away everything that he sold. Ananias' sin was that he lied to the apostles about the amount of money that he made from the cell. He was trying to make himself look better than what he was by acting like he was sacrificing everything. Look at verse 3 again. The text says that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. If Ananias wanted to, he could have kept all the money for himself and it wouldn't have been sinful. You can see that in verse 4. Peter says, while it was remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Peter is saying that this property belonged to Ananias and that he could have done with it as he wished. No one was forcing him to sell it. He could have kept everything if he wanted to. But again, at the end of verse 4, why have you... Contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. So the property was his to do as he wished, but instead he decided to pretend like he was giving away everything that he made from the cell. He lied. He wanted to have this, this good showing. He wanted people to think he was very spiritual. 
He wanted to be like Barnabas and others in the church from the end of chapter 4. And Peter points out that actually he, he's not just lying to, to the church about him being this great guy. He's not just lying to the apostles. He's lying to God. Behind the growing and expanding kingdom and church is God setting up and directing all of the moves. By lying to the church and lying to the apostles, Ananias was lying to God. Now let's look at what happened to Ananias in in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Notice the severity of God. Lying is a very serious sin, but because lying or even exaggerating the truth is so common, as opposed to something like killing, we tend to think it's not a very, very serious sin. People, we think, certainly don't deserve to die for telling a lie. But we see here that God took away Ananias' life for lying. Many of us, we we don't want to think of God like this. We don't want to think that God is like this. Some of us tend to be a little lopsided in our, in our view of, of God's love and grace to the extent that we have no room or category for God's anger and wrath and, and judgment and holiness and, sin, uh, and seriousness and severity against sin. Earlier, Steve, he, he read Joshua 7, and, and in that situation, God gave the Israelites instructions that everything in Jericho belonged to him. And that they couldn't keep anything for themselves. But Achan goes and he keeps things for himself anyway. And when Joshua finds out, they take Achan and stone him to death and burn his body. And after his, te- after his death, the text says that the Lord was no longer angry with Israel. We could name, name so many examples throughout the Bible of God striking people down like Aaron's sons for, for bringing strange fire to God or, or striking down Yuza for simply touching the ark with his hand. When I lived in Kaiserslautern, Germany, I once attended a, a Bible study at a, at a Baptist church. And during the Bible study, a woman had spoken up at one point mentioning that the Old Testament, that was the time, that was the moment, that was the the time period that God would do things like, like take people's life away quickly, instantly, and often for sins. But he doesn't really do that anymore. 
when we see Jesus, we tend to think that God's now somehow different. We think God was, he used to sort of be this, this person who would who'd get out of control, fly off the handle and, and take people out, do things probably without much thought, uncontrolled anger. But now that we've seen the cross and the love of Jesus, we know he's not like that anymore. And I want to say God is never, was never like that uncontrolled anger, unchecked. But Jesus has come and he did reveal to us greater depths of God's love, the love of God that has always been there. It's just that we get to see it in the cross. But he's also shown us greater depths of God's wrath and anger against sin that's also always been there. Jesus spoke about hell often and the eternal nature of it. He brought the intensity of punishment for sin to a place that we never saw in the Old Testament to this degree. So at once he does intensify revealing the love of God that's always been there, but he also intensifies and brings, shows to a greater degree, the severity of God. It doesn't do away with God's holiness. And this narrative, by Ananias dying because of telling a lie, demonstrates that God hasn't changed from who he was in the Old Testament. He's the same. He's still holy. And because of sin, sin deserves death, and, and he can do with sinners as he pleases. Look at the response of the church in verses 5 and 6. Great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The church saw and they heard about the severity of God against Ananias for his sin. And they began to reflect on their own life, encouraging them to, to strive towards holiness. The reflective of hearing about God purging sin from the church through, through taking Ananias' life away caused them to reflect on their own life and encouraging them towards holiness. And they buried him. Let's go on in the text in, in verses 7 and 8. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So they, they wait for her. And, and after three hours come, go by, uh, Sapphira returns home. And, and Peter is there and he interrogates her. And the way that he does this is he repeats 
what Annas had said the price was for the land, and he has Sapphira tell him whether or not that that price that Ananias said is the correct price that they sold the land for. Now, at this point, the text even says that Sapphira doesn't know what happened to her husband. She doesn't know that he's been laying in a grave for three hours. And so Peter, what he's doing, he's giving her the the opportunity to tell the truth. But in her mind, we also have to think, perhaps she also wanted to look better in the eyes of the church, or because she wanted to protect her husband's lie, protect her husband. She knows he was lying. She doesn't want to expose that. She tells Peter that the price that Ananias told them was the price that they sold the land for. It's the correct price. Yes, that's true. That's what we sold the land for. So Peter responds in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And now look, verses 10 and 11. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So we see the the same pattern happen with Sapphira that had happened with her husband Ananias. She lies, she dies, they bury her, the church fears. Same thing. I myself have, have, have gone back, not only this week, but for years, back and forth on whether Ananias and Sapphira were, were Christians or not. Some, some preachers, there, there are people on both sides, there are people that, that believe that they're Christians, there are some that, that don't believe they were Christians. And some people are very confident on to proclaim whether they were or not either way. I don't know how they could be so strong in their opinion. I tend to lean towards the position that they, they were believers. And here's why. Because some of the arguments they come, that come forth is um, uh, is things like the, the sin itself. And I want to say that yes, I, I am very always very concerned, and we always should be, about the salvation of of a professing Christian who's living an unrepentant lifestyle. But many Christians do fall into temptation and do sin like lying or exaggerating the truth all the time. So Ananias and Sapphira, just them telling a lie, that doesn't mean that they weren't Christians. Also, some people will say, well, well, God took their life. That was his, his judgment upon them. Well, I don't agree with that. The fact that God takes their life doesn't mean that they're not believers. And, and, and we'll see in the application section that God takes the life of real forgiven Christians because of sin sometimes. Sometimes it gets to that point. And we're, and we're going to see that in the application. But here's the point I want us to take away from the text, um, the, the biblical uh, point 
as the enemy is working to corrupt the church from within, God keeps the sin from spreading by purging uh, the church through death. The application point. Because God cares about the holiness of his church, he is committed to purging his people and the church from sin. Because God cares about the holiness of his church, he is committed to taking away sin from his people and the church. Many Christians and people that we tend to overemphasize the love and, and grace of God to the extent that, that our view of God's grace tends to overshadow God's other attributes. And, and then some of us, we, we come to unbiblical conclusions about how to think and about how to handle sin, particularly in the church. Some of us tend to think that any action taken against sin or removing sin in the church is simply unkind or, or unloving. I want to say that we, that we have to have a, a deeper understanding of, of God's holiness and severity against sin as well as have a more fuller understanding of, of what grace truly is. We've talked about many times social media, in person, six feet apart, and uh, in, in the sermons uh, about virus and social distancing. And we, we social distance because the, the virus can infect and, and spread to others. Sin is uh, spoken about in a similar way. Scripture talks about something as sin as something that can, can begin with, with one or two members, and if it's not dealt with properly, it can begin to affect other members in the congregation. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to a people that were almost fine. They were, they were okay with the, the sexual immorality of a man in the congregation. Paul was outraged about it. And he said this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The Jews, they would, they would eat unleavened bread at the Passover celebration and any leaven inside the bread would make the bread unacceptable to eat for Passover. And Paul is comparing that to the church. He's saying, don't you know that this man's sexually immoral act can affect and spoil the rest of the congregation? And Paul commands for the man to, to be thrown out. And we could use a, a lot of different examples, but let's take something like gossip. One or two people can, can start spreading rumors or, or begin to sinfully speculate about others in the church. And that can become a temptation to others to start joining in. And before you know it, it starts spreading like wildfire through the church. That's not just gossip. This is, this is with any sin. God has given the church a process to deal with sin in the church and it's, it's not to overlook the sin and, and call that grace. If repentance 
can't be dealt with among individuals, then the instruction in, in Matthew is to, to go before the congregation, expose the sin to the congregation in an attempt to get the church member to repent. And in the text we had talked about when Paul's writing to Corinthians, Paul, he, he actually exposes the, the sin of the man by writing to the congregation that he had his father's wife. And this discipline has a threefold effect. Could probably think of, of more, but three, a threefold effect. First, it helps the person in the sin realize the gravity of their sin so that they won't continue in their sin and become apostates. Hebrews 10. And by the way, if, if calling out of sin publicly is God's means to bring someone to repentance, to life, to, away from something that's going to kill them, then that's not unkind or unloving. That's grace. The second effect that, that this church discipline, the ordinary means of, of God dealing with sin in the church, is that it keeps the sin from spreading further into the church. It cuts, it rips it out so that the sin can no longer do any more damage. And the third effect that it would have is it caused the, the congregation who sees the church discipline happening to stand in fear. What was the reaction of the church when they were told about Ananias and Sapphira dying because of their sin of lying? It was fear. Now, fear can be good. It can be healthy. And this pattern of, of, of discipline in the church is, uh, of fear happening afterwards is consistent throughout Scripture. If you go to 1 Timothy 5, I'll read the first part for a second. It says, As for those who persist in a pattern of sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And to rebuke in the presence of all means to expose the pattern of sin that they're committing. But look at the effect that it's supposed to produce. I'm going to read the whole verse again and listen to the effect that comes at the end of the verse that it's supposed to produce. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Just like the church in Acts, Paul also says that if church discipline is done correctly, then the result is that the congregation stands in fear. They see the biblical model of discipline, which displays not only God's grace, but severity against sin. And this causes them to reflect on their own lives and encourages them to press on to holiness. But although church discipline is God's ordinary means of, of taking sin from the church, sometimes just like he did with Ananias and Sapphira. He takes away a Christian's life. Everyone, I'm going to give you a second. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 
I'll, I'll tell you the, the verses in a second, but I'm going to give you some, some context. So at the, at the at church of Corinth, there were many people that were not properly taking the Lord's Supper. Some of them were, they were overeating and, and others were, were not, they were eating all the bread and, and others weren't even be able to, aren't able to partake in the Lord's Supper and others would, would drink so much wine that they're getting drunk. And Paul says, you know, why are you guys doing that? You guys can't, you guys have your own homes to, to eat and drink in. You guys are coming to a holy meal and you're doing this. And listen to what he says in verses 29 and 30. Let's, let's look there. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So he's, here he's saying that God has taken the life of some Christians because of a sin that they committed. And if we look at verse 32, there's another evidence that these were true, genuine believers. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, and, and that judgment is the, the sickness and death that they've been experiencing, Paul says, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there are two, two points to take away here. Paul says that the death of the believers was the discipline of God to keep them from becoming condemned. A believer's death, and we can't look at someone's death and make the judgment whether that was a punishment of God or not. That's, that's not what the point is. The point is that sometimes it, it does happen, but if God does take away a Christian's life, that doesn't mean they're no longer covered in the blood of the Lamb. It doesn't, the believer's death is, is not their, their condemnation. And if it's not their condemnation, according to, to verse 32 and verse 33, then that means that they were with God when they, were die, when they died and were true believers. It shows us that sickness and death can sometimes be God's discipline, but it's not God's judicial wrath against us, if that makes sense. It's a loving discipline. We have to realize that God is a holy God. He hates sin, and when his people commit sin, it grieves him, and he'll take any necessary step to remove sin from your life and from the church. Sin is serious. When writing this sermon, I saw the, the sobering nature of the text and, and how difficult of a text it is to talk about because, you know, I don't like to dwell on these things either. I don't, but it's there and I, and I have to give it the seriousness that the text deserves. But I do want you to know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even the radical, extreme discipline in your life that never changes, even for a second, your judicial, eternal standing before God. You are and will always be not guilty in God's courtroom. 
Jesus, or we will always be forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. The discipline of God is for our good. Jesus says in Revelation that he disciplines the one that he loves. In Hebrews, it says that those without discipline and rebuke are actually illegitimate sons. So if you can, can go and ride on, keep going right on sinning and there's never rebuke in your life from the word or from a friend or from the church or some other means, you don't go to the word and it doesn't wake you up or, or some other means that God puts in your life, if that doesn't happen, that should concern you more than somebody actually confronting you for your sin. If Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira were believers, even though they physically died, they were still forgiven and in the joyful presence of God when they died. If you're listening in and you're not trusting in Jesus, as of this moment, you should have no hope, no confidence. Whether for a particular sin or not, your life could be taken away from you in an instant. You might not see tomorrow. And what'll happen then? What's going to happen to you then? You're going to be in eternity. And you're going to experience God's condemnation and God's eternal wrath for your sins. And when we think about the severity and how holy God is that, that any sin is an eternal offense against him, we see the level of, the, of his holiness. It's his, it's his otherness. He's, he's so far above everything else and he, he absolutely hates sin. But there is one who is holy and perfect and offered up himself in your place if you repent and believe. If you turn away from sin and trust in Jesus and his sacrificial death, on your behalf, you can be forgiven today. And when we think about this, about God's holiness, that all, all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. All, all liars, no thief, will enter the eternal state all cowards. This is all Revelation 21, 20. If God is that holy, if God, or sorry, holy is the only way to express it. If God is holy and that's how he views sin, how precious, how worthy must the blood of Jesus be to take away that wrath? How valuable is that? 
As Hebrews says, don't, don't treat that as common. Don't trample underfoot the Son of God. Turn to him. If you can turn to him, he will forgive you every time. If you can repent and believe, do that today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We don't want to ever forget about your holiness and ever move beyond that. But at the same time, it helps us see how great the sacrifice of Jesus was. That that sacrifice, that death, can forgive all of us. Understanding your wrath and holiness makes the good news so much better. It helps us see it so much more clearly. Lord Jesus, thank you for standing in our place. And we know that if we are trusting in you, eternally we have nothing to worry about. We thank you again and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.